Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We've been examining our Lord's teaching on prayer for the last four Sunday mornings. And we're going to turn a page metaphorically, maybe literally, depending on where chapter 11 falls in your Bible. I want to speak to you this morning on the fundamental sin of all humanity. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28 is our text today. Before I read that, I want to uh, read another text. You can just listen to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. We're studying the book of Hebrews on Wednesday evening in this room, verse by verse. We're in chapter 3, and last Wednesday night, we came to a few verses that really struck me. You know that the writer of Hebrews is ostensibly writing to Christians, Jews who had converted to Christianity, had professed publicly faith in Christ, and yet uh, there was the acknowledgement that not everyone who's talking about heaven is going there, that some people may have all the accoutrements of Christianity but not have saving faith. And so he says, take care, brothers, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And so the clearest evidence that someone is a born again is that they persevere until the end. He's not saying we can lose our salvation. Taking the whole of scripture, we, we know that when someone walks away from the faith, the truth is they never were in the faith. John said they went out from us because they were not of us. And so this morning we're going to look at that fundamental sin of unbelief. Let's read our text. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. And he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their hearts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he is not gathered with me scatters. And when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God 
and observe it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, I've identified the fundamental sin of humanity as unbelief. It might first help to establish that humans are indeed sinful. Now, I realize that many of us that to, to say we need proof that man is sinful is saying that we need proof that water is wet or that fire is hot. We look around us. We read the newspaper. We watch the news. There is a mountain of evidence that man is not just a sinner, but that he's totally depraved. And yet there are some in every generation that maintain that man is a simply a victim of his own circumstances. Man, they would say, is fundamentally good, and only through negative experiences or social disadvantages does man's basis, his baseness emerge. Well, that might help some folks sleep more comfortably at night, but several thousand years of human history, and more importantly, the Holy Bible, refutes the fundamental goodness of man. Now, those of us who know our Bibles know that uh, when God created man and woman, he placed them in a perfect environment. He said it was good. His highest creation is man. The only creature that it is said was made in the image of God. And he gave them one prohibition in this perfect environment, and that was not to eat of this particular tree that was in the midst of the garden. But you know that they disobeyed. And because they disobeyed, sin's curse passed on Adam and Eve, and not only them, but on every subsequent generation. We today are sinners by nature, natures and, and sinners by choice. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9 summarizes the human condition this way. The heart is more deceitful than all else and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, humanity is not basically good. All of us have a deceitful and a wicked heart and we can't even understand the depth of its depravity. So what is the fundamental sin of humanity? Uh, there are certainly innumerable ways of expressing sinfulness. Everyone has their favorite. I heard a theologian recently asked to define free will. And he says, uh, man is free to choose his favorite sin. That's basically the definition of free will that the Bible teaches. That left to our own devices, left in and of ourselves, none of us would choose God. We are depraved. And I believe that the Bible teaches that the fundamental sin of humanity is willful, stubborn unbelief, the unwillingness to believe the Word of God. It's not that there's not enough evidence to believe it, it's the stubborn unwillingness to believe it. And it started, as I said, with our first parents. Genesis chapter 3, listen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. You see, the fundamental sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, was unbelief. Satan said, don't believe God, and she believed a lie rather than the truth. 
That was the sin of Adam and Eve. What was the fundamental sin years later of the Israelites, the chosen people of God, after they were led out of Egyptian bondage? What kept them from entering the promised land? Well, Psalm 95 says it was unbelief. Listen, today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they've not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The way that we are prevented from entering God's rest, which in our context is heaven, in the Old Testament context was the promised land, is unbelief. You see, the fundamental sin of the wilderness wanderers was just that. It was willful, stubborn unbelief. And I would hasten to add the fundamental sin of the people of Jesus' day was the same. We see that very clearly here in Luke 11. So let's walk through our text using the outline that was provided. The first thing we see in verse 14 and 15 is a false accusation. And he was casting out a demon and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. And some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, and others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now Satan is a liar. Jesus says he's the father of lies. He is subtle and he poisons that which is good. And here is another example. Here's Jesus doing something amazing. Casting a demon out of a man who's unable to speak. And rather than rejoicing when the deed is done, when the man begins to speak and is restored, rather than giving God the glory, they start lying about Jesus. They start gossiping. And it's not original with them. Started way back up in Galilee in the first year of his ministry. When Jesus was performing miracles there, the religious leaders started spreading a rumor that Jesus was performing his miracles in the power of Satan or that he had a demon. And some were even saying that he was mentally insane. This was the party line of the Pharisees all the way up to the cross. They could not refute the veracity of the miracles. You'll not find in the scripture any of the Pharisees saying, these are fakes, he's a fraud. There were too many eyewitnesses. The people knew the people that were being healed. They were present when the blind, who had been blind since birth, were granted sight. They were there. They checked the pulse of Lazarus. He was dead. And God raised him from the dead. So they knew they could not refute the veracity of the miracles. So they reassigned the power behind the miracles. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, in fact, God in the flesh. And they said, no, that's not the case. He's doing these spiritual miracles in the power of darkness. That is, he's doing this in the power. And the lowest spiritual power that they could think of was this God called Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies, we would say in our day. Really, it means the Lord of the manure. They could not think of a deeper and more cutting insult. So this is rank blasphemy. Now, there are very few people in our culture today who would have the boldness to do that. To look at Christmas, to view the teaching of the incarnation, to hear the wonderful music that has been produced through the years and wash their hands up and say, it's all a lie. Jesus was a fraud and a charlatan. There are those people that exist. I read a article about a group like that this week. They're still around, but they are 
rare. But there's another group of people who see the miracles, they hear the stories, and they're not satisfied. Look at verse 16. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now he just performed a sign from heaven. One of the most amazing things anyone had ever seen. A, a man who was unable to speak suddenly was able to talk. But it was never enough, was it? In fact, Jesus said of that group of people, this generation is wicked. All they want is a sign. It's never enough. It causes um, the blind to see. It's not enough. He feeds the 5,000. It's not enough. Jesus says, even if the dead are raised, it would not be enough to convince them that he was the Messiah. It's because the problem was not a lack of proof. The problem was their wicked, stubborn heart. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, that be careful that your heart does not become calloused. How? By the deceitfulness of sin. That is when we are exposed to the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and his miracles day after day, week after week, year after year, if we do not submit to his lordship, it has the opposite effect that we become calloused and hardened to the point where we no longer are sensitive to spiritual things. And that's why I've said a number of times from this pulpit, I believe one of the most dangerous places in the world is right here. Keller, Texas, where the gospel is so easily accessed, where there's a Bible or 10 in every home, when there is gospel preaching on every radio dial, where there is access to the gospel in every good book in the world over the internet for free. And yet rather than mass conversions, we have the fastest growing segment of our society are those who say, I don't believe in anything. It's not for lack of proof, not for lack of evidence. It is the same sin that was the sin of our first parents, that was the sin of the Israelites in the wilderness, that was the sin of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. It is willful, stubborn unbelief. And secondly, Jesus responds to that false accusation with a bold refutation. Look at verse 17. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now this refutation goes all the way back to the Old Testament, I think to the very throne room of Pharaoh. And you remember when God sent Moses and Aaron and they confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go. They'd been in bondage for hundreds of years. He wanted a sign. And Moses threw down his staff and it turned to a snake. And do you remember what Pharaoh did? He had his magicians do the same. Of course, Moses' staff consumed those of the magicians, to show the power of God. But, but, but the obvious is true. Satan and his forces have spiritual power. That's what the Pharisees recognized when they said, Jesus is not performing these miracles through the power of Jehovah. He's doing it for the power of the other side, the kingdom of darkness. They recognized that Satan has spiritual power. And friends, we better as well. Satan is not a metaphor. He's not a mythological creature. He is a person 
who is alive and well in this world. In fact, the scripture calls him the king of this and God of this age. All of the wicked world system around us is controlled by him, but he's not God, is he? He is a created being and his fate is set. And it goes all the way back again to Genesis 3. You will bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman, that is the Messiah, will crush the head ultimately of Satan. And he did so on the cross. Satan is an enemy, but he is a defeated enemy fighting a guerrilla war. But one day, the scripture says, he will be cast into the lake of fire which was prepared for him and his demons. And, and this is the refutation of Christ. He, he's saying there are two kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of Satan and there's his kingdom. The Bible says this, that when we're saved, we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And he uses a great illustration here in verse 21. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. Now, Jesus is admitting Satan's a strong man. Peter says it this way, he's a lion, which is the king of the beast, roaming about seeking who he may destroy. It is foolish to make light of Satan and his power. And yet the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The strong man is Satan, but Jesus says there's a stronger man than Satan. And that's Christ. He comes and he takes away Satan's armor on which he's relied and distributes his plunder. Now what is Satan's plunder? It's souls. Satan has under his authority countless billions of human beings. And when the gospel is proclaimed, the Lord calls out of darkness many of those souls and their saves. And Jesus is taking away Satan's plunder. He's transferring our citizenship from hell to heaven. And Jesus is the stronger man. And then we see another vivid illustration, verse 24. Remember, he's addressing himself to, I believe, the Pharisees, who are the ones spreading the rumor that he's doing this miracle business in the power of Satan. They've just seen a man be cleansed of an unclean spirit. So Jesus seizes upon the opportunity to teach them a great lesson about themselves. He says in verse 24, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Basically, all human religion other than biblical Christianity is a system of works-based righteousness. That is to say, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Mormonism, whatever cult you want to ascribe, whatever world religion you want to ascribe other than biblical Christianity, really are variations of the same theme, which is what can I do to achieve forgiveness, salvation, heaven, Biblical Christianity says the answer to that question is nothing. That the only hope that you have is what God has done for you and by putting your faith and trust in Christ alone. The Pharisees were ethically 
pristine in their own mind. They thought they were the gold standard of morality. People were compared or contrasted against the Pharisees. And yet Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll not enter into heaven. That is, they are sinners and they fall short, but, but they thought they had got themselves in order, squared away. They had swept the house clean, in other words. And yet Jesus used this illustration of this spirit who is kicked out of the house, it's swept clean, and he comes back later and he brings six others, seven others with him. And the end of that man, he says, is worse than its beginning. And friends, that is the summation of all attempts to please God through works righteousness. It ends worse than it started. It is fruitless. It is vain. And so having heard this, some woman in the crowd, while Jesus was saying these things, verse 27, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now she was trying to pay Jesus a compliment. This was a common phrase in the Middle East to ascribe worthiness or praise to a public official. Blessed is your mother. Jesus says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Puts us in mind of the Beatitudes, doesn't it? When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that realize they have nothing to offer God. Juxtaposed against the Pharisees who thought they had everything to offer God. Jesus told the story of that publican who could not raise his head but said, have mercy upon me, the sinner. That's the man that went to his house justified. So blessing is not to be found in criticizing the Lord. It's not to be found in looking for one more miraculous sign or wonder. It's not even to be found in having a positive attitude or even an attraction to the things of God. It is to be found in submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by simple childlike faith. And I say all that to say this, friends, we are opening our doors wide through the month of December. We have many opportunities for you to invite your lost friends. But I never assume, even on Sunday morning, that in a room filled with this many people that everyone here is truly born again. It is very possible, indeed likely, that there are people who come to First Baptist Keller week after week, month after month, year after year. And very few of them would be openly blasphemous and say it's all a lie, but I like the music. Very few of them would even say, you know, I'm almost there, but if I could just see one more miracle, I could be saved. There's some here like that. There's a lot of others who are admirers of Jesus. They say, he's great. Blessed is the womb that gave him birth and blessed are the breasts that gave him suckle. But they've never bowed their knee to his lordship. They just admire him. It's also likely that there are people here who like the Pharisees are moralists. They think by coming to church, especially at Christmas, they can make up for some bad things they did throughout the year. Maybe start the year clean at New Year's and try to do better next year. Sweeping their house in order, but the truth is probably this time next year, their life will be worse than it is today. True blessing, true salvation comes by salvation 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remember I said that we like to put each other in categories. We have all sorts of nuances. And I gave you four categories of lost people. The truly blasphemous, the doubters who are yet to believe, the admirers of Jesus from afar, and the ethicist or the moralist. Those are four. But the truth is Jesus doesn't see those four groups of people as four distinct groups. He sees them as one. I know that because of what I read in verse 23. Look at it. I skipped over it intentionally so that we could come back to it because I think it's the hinge upon which the entire chapter turns. Jesus says in public to anyone who would hear, no matter what category they found themselves in, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. You're either for him or against him. Now, we tend not to do that. We, we tend to put gradations of unbelief. There, there's the rank blasphemer in which even lost people sometimes stay away for fear of being struck by lightning. There is the, the doubter who just needs a little more proof. There's the admirer who's not yet bowed the knee. And then there's the moralist who tries to add Jesus to their formula of good works. But Jesus says, the truth is, all of you are in the same category of unbelief. And so let me break it down for you very clearly, lest you miss my point. If you're here today and you are an admirer of Christ, but you will not recognize His Lordship. If you're here today and you're trying to live a good life outside of the strength that the Holy Spirit provides. If you're here today and you believe if there was just one more miracle, if God would speak to you audibly, then you would believe. Jesus puts you in the same category as the rankest of blasphemers. Those are the only two categories. And so if you're here today and you've not by humble, simple faith received this gift that he offers, not just at Christmas time, but year round, I call upon you. I plead with you, despair of anything you're waiting on. It won't come. Despair on any good work, any level you're trying to achieve, you'll never get there. Despair of any thought you have of Jesus that is lower than he's God in the flesh. Humble yourself. Come to him on his terms with empty hands and outturned pockets. Throw yourself before him and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. He'll hear your prayer. He'll forgive your sins. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit who will lead you to all truth. All of the questions that you've had are answered in Jesus Christ. All the promise of God find their yes and amen in him. He's what you're looking for. Trust him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, what a sad thing to see here in chapter 11. Men and women who have seen incredible miracles. They've seen demons cast out. They've seen the blind given sight. They've seen the dead raised. They will not believe. It's never enough. In fact, some of them are so hardened in their hearts that they lie about Jesus. Though it makes no logical sense a house divided against itself will not stand. Jesus can't be on the same side as Satan. 
Father, humanity has not changed at all in 2,000 years. Even since the Garden of Eden, he's not changed. His fundamental sin is willful, stubborn unbelief. So, Father, I pray for some here today who admire Jesus, but they don't bow their knee. They think he's a good man, but not Lord. Lord, would you open their eyes? Show them today that it's not for lack of evidence that they have not submitted. It's their own heart. Lord, I pray that you would soften and mollify them. I pray you would take away that heart of stone and grant to them a heart of flesh. Lord, maybe some here who through overexposure to the good news through the years have become hardened in their heart by the deceitfulness of sin. And yet, Lord, we know that you are more powerful than even a calloused heart. Would you penetrate today and find their heart? Convict them of sin and judgment and righteousness. Call them to yourself and save their soul. Lord, we would rejoice to see many souls saved this Christmas season. And we believe Jesus would be honored. And so we ask it in faith and with boldness that you do just that. In his name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.